You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. I, I really do enjoy sports. Uh, when I was younger, I enjoyed playing sports. And while my mind can remember the things I used to do when I played sports, my body says, no way is that happening. And now I mostly just enjoy watching sports, except for, for really just one thing. I, I don't appreciate all the celebrating that goes on in most uh, college and pro sports, and it's even filtered down into high school. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, I assume. Um, uh, it often um, isn't the team that's celebrating it is an individual who is celebrating and drawing attention to themselves for something that they did. I was taught every coach I had from when I started playing basketball in the church league when I was five, all the way, all the way through every coach I ever had would always talk about there is no I in team. It's all about the team. It's not about you, just you individually. And so today you watch football and you, you will see on any given play, the defensive linemen and the linebackers, they're engaged with the offensive line. And then the safety comes running up, untouched, and makes this great tackle. And what does he do? He gets up, runs five yards down the field, and kind of strikes a pose. And usually flexes some muscle. Basically, at least it looks, I don't know what's in their heart in those moments, but it looks like, hey, look at me, look at how great I am, look at what I did. And all the while, in those moments, I'm thinking, if his linemen and linebackers didn't do the dirty work of engaging the blockers, he wouldn't have made that tackle. But they don't go down and celebrate, they just go back to the huddle ready for the next play. Now, in the scope of life, this is not a big deal. This is a game. <laughs> this isn't real life here. This is, this is just a game. But it does run contrary to the life of humility we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And it seems to be a stark contrast when they do that. And it is certainly contrary to John the Baptist's great confession that Jesus must increase, I must decrease. We are presented in that one statement by John the Baptist, a statement that is so countercultural that it's just obvious that we are called to a completely different thing than the world is. A call to live a life yielded to Christ that is given for His glory, not our glory. To exalt not ourselves, but to exalt our Lord and Savior. To not draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to Him. This morning we are going to spend our time looking at John the Baptist. Confession. I'll just be referring to him as John throughout the rest of this, this, this sermon. But we are talking about John the Baptist here. There are a few Johns in the, in the New Testament. I'm talking about John the Baptist, and I'll just, again, be referring to him as John. 
to his confession that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 22. John 3, verse 22. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly way, in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word that instructs us, that teaches us, that corrects us, that adjusts our life and it adjusts our thinking. And so we just open ourselves to that work this morning. Lord, do that through your word. Help us to understand what it means that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Lord, we ask this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Amen. There are three words that will help us understand this passage. And they all begin with the letter J. There is jealousy, there is joy, and then there is Jesus. The jealousy of John's disciples, the joy of John's humility, 
and the superiority of Jesus over all. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's begin looking at jealousy, the jealousy of John's disciples. That back in verses 22 through 26. And in those, those first verses, we are given the context for what, what is taking place here. Both Jesus and John were baptizing people. Jesus was in the Judean countryside. John was near Anan, which is near Salim, which is all this is north of Jerusalem. And somewhere in this process, the disciples of John got into a discussion with a Jew. And that the discussion was about purification. Now, we are not told who that Jew was. We don't have a name there. We don't know if he was a prominent member or a religious leader. We don't know any of that about him. But the results of that discussion are important. The result of that discussion was that John's disciples came to him, and they seemed to be, we could probably read this into it, that, that they were a little miffed about what was happening. That more people were starting to go to Jesus than were following John. And again, though we don't know the details of the discussion that John's disciples had with this Jew, we can surmise a little bit by what took place. It is likely that the Jew was arguing with him that he didn't need to be baptized by John because of the purification rites of the Old Covenant law, of the Old Testament law. That they were enough. Why would I be baptized when this, this is enough? And it is easy to imagine, even from there, the Jew saying, and if John's baptism was so important, what is Jesus doing over there where all the people are really starting to to go. Doesn't what Jesus, isn't what he, Jesus doing make John's baptism a little irrelevant? And so what happens is whatever that conversation was, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm just surmising here about what took place because we're not told. But because of that conversation, John's disciples turn and they question John himself about what is happening and what is happening with Jesus growing popularity. You can feel the angst. You can feel the envy in their question to John. Everyone's starting to go to Jesus. Where does that leave us? I mean, that isn't right. You came first, John. You were on the scene first. You were humble enough to, to point out Jesus, that He was the Messiah, He was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world? It would be so easy for us to conclude that they probably weren't so much concerned about John as they were concerned about themselves. It wasn't so much that they were asking, hey John, what about you? But they were probably, and what we see in this is, they were asking, what about us? We chose you, John. We cast our lot with you. And now it looks like we hitched our wagon to a falling star. We, we, we're in the, you know, we chose wrong. Is that what's going on here? Could it be that they were thinking, even though we know why John came as one to prepare the way for the Messiah, surely there must still be some recognition and some kind of prominent role for John and his followers. Certainly, there had to be something more for John, and therefore those who were John's disciples. 
And this wasn't what was happening. Jesus' fame and Jesus' following was growing among the people, not John's. And they had cast their lot with John. He was at one time the up-and-coming prophet on the scene. People were drawn to him. People found him and his message compelling. He carried weight. He carried credibility. He carried authority. And all that was seemingly unraveling for them. And their question to John reeks of jealousy. Why Jesus and not you? Why them and not us? I think there are some important implications as we think about what's taking place here. As we consider what John's disciples said here. And one of the things this, this probably can help us and highlights for us is that we need to be aware of the power of filters in our lives. Filters. A filter is something that sifts out some parts but lets other stuff pass through. I love to fry things. I love to deep fry things. I deep fry turkeys. I deep fry chicken, french fries, chicken wings. I like to deep fry. And I have one of those big turkey fryers that I get out two or three times a year. And when I'm done frying, I take that three or four gallons of, of oil and I pour it through a filter. And what that filter does is it pulls out all of the, the food particles and just lets the oil come through. We have mental and emotional and theological filters in our lives. Filters through which we hear things and receive things. And those filters often prevent us from seeing the truth. They have a way of sifting out the stuff we don't want to hear while just holding on to the stuff we like or that fits into what we want or serves our agenda. We're all susceptible to this. And the sooner we understand our filters, the better we will be. The disciples of John heard him. They even said this. They heard Jesus. John confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. He even reminds them of this in verse 28. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I wonder, in, that, in, that, in, in those two phrases, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Did they not really hear the, I am not the Christ? They just focused on, I was sent? They dismissed part of this? We don't know, but that is what often happens. It is easy for all of us to hear what fits with what we want to hear, so we filter out the other stuff. We just don't hear it because we don't want to hear it. So what are the filters of your life? What is it that may be preventing you and preventing me from hearing the truth of God's Word? The filter that prevents us from seeing the truth about our lives? What are the filters that we have developed that prevent us from truly accepting the grace of God in Christ Jesus and in the Gospel? I wish, I wish I could just do a whole sermon on this, but there, there's just so much more to get to. Uh, 
But an important and I think helpful prayer would be, Lord, show me the filters I might have that keep me from seeing the full truth. Just a simple prayer. The Lord, Lord's not going to begrudge you on this. He's going to say, okay, let's, let, let's help you see yourself. See more clearly. So, so we do want to be aware from what, what the disciples, from the jealousy they demonstrated about the filters. But, but this also tells us the dangers of misplaced devotions. The dangers of misplaced devotions. John's disciple asked, why are all the people going to Jesus? You see, the real question here should have been, why haven't they gone over to Jesus? I mean, let's not, let's not misunderstand. John had a unique place in church history. Jesus, in Matthew 11, Jesus said this about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yes, he has a prominent role in church history. He had a prominent role in the beginning ministry of Jesus. But hear this, John's greatness was only in relationship to Jesus. It only mattered because of who Jesus was. Remove Jesus and John is no one. And what he's doing is foolishness without Jesus. I mean, John, to, to their credit, John's disciples must have loved him. They must have, have devoted to him, have some kind of affection, some kind of connection to John. But their devotion to him prevented a greater devotion to Christ. John was not the end. He was the means to the end. And they were latching on to John as if he was the end. I mean, isn't that like us? We take good things and we let them be a substitute for the great things. We let the good things obscure greater things. This was an accusation that Jesus had against the religious leaders in his day. In John chapter 5, we're just a couple chapters from now, Jesus said this to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures were great. Jesus isn't saying, oh, it's horrible that you devote yourself to scriptures. He said, but you missed something. Those are not the end. And we do this all the time. We, we make idols out of things when we, when we take what God intends as a, as a means and we turn it into an end in itself. That's idolatry in, it, in essence. We substitute good in the place of great. Everything in our lives should point to Christ and lead us to devotion to Him. John knew, he knew that, yet, I don't think he was deterred by the disciples, his disciples' questions. And as we are, we're going to see, John knew who he was, he knew why he had came, and he knew what was most important. So let's look at the joy of John's humility. The joy of John's humility, verses 27 through 30. This is the second J, joy. 
In response to his disciples' question, John again makes it clear who Christ is and who is not. He's saying, him, he's the Christ, not me. And John makes six statements, all demonstrating his humility in confessing Christ. The first statement he makes is this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Has that ever impacted your theology, that statement, that truth? That's a pretty big statement. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from from heaven. God allots to people the role, the position, the gifts, the abilities, and the resources as he decrees, as he desires. God is sovereign in that. And John knows this and is reminding his disciples of this. They want, John's disciples want John to have a larger role. And John says, I can only have the role that God intends. God determines these parts of our lives, not we ourselves. This is part of God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty, which is his absolute rule and control over all things, big and small. That's his sovereignty. His sovereignty is not cruel, it's not capricious, it's not arbitrary. It comes out of the kindness and generosity and love and grace and mercy of his life. It's not about his whims. And he is the source of what fills our lives as well as what defines our lives. Listen to what James chapter 1 verse 17 says. Every good and Every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not capricious. Everything, listen brothers and sisters, everything good in our life, God is the source. Not us. Everything good and perfect in our lives comes to us ultimately in grace, not through merit. And because of this, the response is humility. That's the only real response. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're all saying the same thing. What what John is confessing here, what James wrote, and what Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. They're all just acknowledging this. What matters is God. What matters is His plan. What matters is Christ and the gospel. All we do is, all we have is to do what God gives us to do. And to be content in that. And to be satisfied in that. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. But they all have the same source. God. And they are all intended for one purpose. His glory and His kingdom. John the the Baptist was clear on this. John was clear on why he had been given all that he had. He knew his station. He knew his ministry was given to him. Not because he earned it, but because God chose him. 
Is this a stabilizing truth in our lives? In your life, in my life. We can't receive anything unless God gives it to us. And when He does, He empowers us to use it for His purpose and His glory. But, but what do we do? What is it so easy for us to do? To complain, to bemoan our station. And unlike John, we want the recognition, we want the glory, we want the attention. Just being honest with you, there was a time earlier in my ministry when I was complaining and was discouraged because I didn't have a larger church. My heart wasn't right. I wanted more people. I wanted more resources. I wanted more recognition, more, more prominence. And the Lord began to, to move on my heart through the parable Jesus told of the talents. Remember that? There were three men. He gave one five talents. He gave one two talents. And he gave one one talent. A talent is, is not an ability. A talent is a, a measure of money in the, old, in, in the New Testament. So he gave them. One had five measures of money. The other had two measures. And one had one measure. And the Lord began to use this to convict me that I was be complaining because he had given me one talent instead of five. My heart was not trusting Him, nor was I resting in Him. I felt cheated. I felt like God was cheating me. I should have more. And God, who is infinitely patient and merciful, He turned my heart to see what He had given me. And to stop wanting more and to be faithful with what He had already given. Instead of wanting five talents, was I being faithful with the one? which I was not. John knew his role, and he knew God's, that God determines his life. And I think there's also a warning here against selfish ambition. One of the biggest influences in my life, especially in, in, in high school and college, was Francis Schaeffer read almost everything he wrote. Um, there was a particular piece he wrote uh, called No Little People. It's not one of his more, more well-known pieces. But in that, he talks about this parable, uh, this parable from Luke. Um, and it's this parable. Jesus told this parable about a dinner that was given. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus is instructing us as his followers to actively, purposely choose the lesser place, the lower place. To not go after the position that is public, that is visible in leadership. 
This is what Schaefer said. Jesus commands Christians to, to seek consciously the lowest place. Both individual Christians and Christian organizations fall prey to the temptation of rationalizing this way as we build bigger and bigger empires. But according to the scripture, this is backwards. We should consciously take the lower place unless the Lord himself extrudes us into a greater one. If our heart is to seek out the public more visible role, then we are not qualified for Christian leadership. Okay, as one in leadership, ow. <laughs> now, listen, what, John, what, what, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying be lazy. He's not saying don't be zealous because we are told to be zealous. He's saying if your ambition is to be in the visible place, it is to get recognition, it is to be in the public's eye, then you're missing the call of leadership in the church. That's not what that's about. Because if you want to be great in the kingdom, God... What? You have to learn to be the servant of all. It's not about who's serving you. It's about who you're serving. And somehow or another, coming out of the last 30 years, and I thank God we are coming out, that got, that got turned around. Then, then John said this, moving on. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. We looked at this already. John was sent before the one to prepare the way for the one. He wasn't the one, the Messiah. John's third statement, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Seems pretty straightforward. The one who's getting married is not the friend of the, bride, of the bridegroom or the groom. He's the friend. And what, what John is introducing here basically is a wedding or a marriage imagery. And, and most Jews would have immediately connected this to the Old Testament prophet Hosea who married Gomer, which was a picture of God's love for the church, of God's love for his people, and ultimately for the church. Jesus is the one who came to win his bride. Jesus is the one who came to secure her. Jesus is the one who came to bring his people to himself. He is the one with the bride. He is the one that, 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 that we should be focused on, not the friend of the bridegroom. And that's who John was. And that's who we are. The next statement. I'm sorry, there's just so much to cover here, so we have to keep moving. Uh, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Here John is pointing to the joy of the one in this relationship who, who's, who's the friend of the bridegroom. He loves the voice of the bridegroom. He loves to hear his words. He loves to know he's on the scene. He's present. And his joy is connected to the bride and the groom coming together, not to being the person of, of, of recognition. And this leads to John's conclusion. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What a tremendous statement. All that John had prepared for, all that John had worked for, is being fulfilled right in his eyes, and he was filled with joy because of it. John's heart isn't filled with jealousy, it's filled with joy. Oh, that that would be true of us. 
That our joy would be always in the glory of our Lord, in the attention that is drawn to Him, where we are pointing people to Him, where we are promoting Him, not ourselves, not our agenda. Family, please hear this. The truth is, the greatest joy that we will ever know in our Christian life will come from surrendering to Christ. Without exception. It comes from doing His will. It comes from serving His kingdom. It comes from desiring to exalt Him and not ourselves. And this was John's heart. And then this brings us to the great, one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, could there be any greater statement for a follower of Jesus than that? Could there be a greater desire for the follower of Jesus than Jesus increasing while I decrease? Could there be a greater motive behind all that we do? Jesus increasing means he's getting the attention. He's getting the recognition. He's getting the praise. He's being exalted. Not us. We're the ones pointing to him. See, it's... John is just fascinating on so many levels. John was resisting what is probably one of the most basic temptations that the evil one uses against God's people. It was at the heart of the temptation in the Garden of Eden. It was the heart of the, of the, the temptation of the serpent speaking to Adam and Eve. Where he was just reversing what, what, what John said. Satan was tempting them to set their hearts to do just the opposite. They must increase. God must decrease. Satan said this in Genesis 3. You will not surely die if if you eat. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You're going to be more. You're going to increase. And God is going to decrease by implication. God becomes small, chintzy, petty. It is a temptation for us today to promote ourselves instead of Christ. Yet there was joy for John in this humble confession. May each day the Lord fill our hearts with this desire and prayer. Lord, please increase in my life and may my life in no way obscure your glory or take from your glory. Listen, the sinful heart is a glory thief. It wants to steal glory. We don't produce the glory. The only glory we can steal is is Christ. We must be aware of our hearts. Have you ever heard of Nicholas von Zinzendorf? Well, he's he's written some great hymns. But he's basically known for this one quote. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, ironically, he's known for that famous quote. By forgotten, he isn't saying, hey, no one needs to know you ever... He's not talking about God forgets you. It's not talking about that you no longer have place and importance in the kingdom of God. He's talking about in the, in the scope of the world. If no one knows your name in this world, it doesn't matter. It's that they know Christ's name. That our life is given to that. 
It's not a sin if people know your name, you know, after we're gone, if you wrote, but the point is, that's not our heart. Our heart isn't that people remember us. It's our heart is that people remember Christ. It's not that they know who we are. It's that they know who he is. May God grant us this kind, this, just this heart to see Christ increase with our every word and work. That we would move to the background and Christ would move forward. So finally we come to the third J, Jesus. We're going to finish this. Verses 31 through 36. Listen again, John, John just finished making, making these earlier statements. Now he's going to talk about Jesus. He says, number one, he comes from above and is over all. He's just going to detail for us how Jesus is superior. John came from the earth. Jesus came from heaven. And as such, Jesus is over all. So John knows what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the one keeping atoms in their place, not some scientific force. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He comes from above and He is over all. John also tells us that Jesus' words are God's word. Verse 32 He bears witness to what he has seen. When he's speaking, he's bearing witness to what he has seen, yet no one receives his his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus is speaking God's words. He next says this, He gives the Spirit without measure. See, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would, would, would come upon people to empower them for specific tasks and seasons of ministry. And now what we're finding out, that the Spirit is not long just come upon people for a season. He's going to come in people. He's going to abide in people. He's going to dwell in people. He's going to reside, not just a little bit, but without measure. He will not be restrained. He will be active, the the Spirit of God. He will be powerful. He will always be at work. There's never a moment of your life where the Spirit of God is not at work in you. He's always at work. That we would understand the gift of the Spirit and what it means for everything that Christ has done for us and what it means for everything that He requires of us. Because if the Spirit's not in us, what He requires of us is going to be a law that will condemn us. The Spirit's at work to bring about obedience and sanctification. The Spirit works in ways no one else can to apply the gospel of Jesus in our hearts and minds and to bring about transformation. He's doing this without measure. Think about that, family. Without measure. There's no end. There's no limit. 
I don't know if you've ever driven down 37, about where it turns into 281, right there at the Pearl. There's a big billboard there. And on that billboard, I'd noticed this last Sunday, they were advertising what the lottery jackpot was. It was about $440 million. So in that moment, I had this fleshly thought. Wow. How freeing it would be to have that money. All the problems it could solve. All the good it could do. How freeing it would be to not have to worry about money. And then the Spirit crashed my flesh party. And said, essentially, is $440 million worth more than me? Could it do more than I could do? Could it provide more than I could provide? Will you be more free? We are so much better supplied and resourced. And provided for in the Spirit of God given to us by the Son without measure. He said this, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. This tells us that love existed in the perfect community between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Love exists between the Godhead, in the Godhead. They love each other. They exist in perfect communion with each other. The Son came to do the Father's will and He came with the love of God the Father. So when we think about love in our church, when we think about love in this community of faith, it comes as an expression, it comes as an extension of the love that already exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why community is possible, because He exists in community. And finally, whoever believes in Him has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in Him and obey Him remains under the wrath of God. So, when we, when we see this, who is John compared to Jesus? If someone believed in John, would they have eternal life? No. What has John done compared to what Jesus has done? What could John do that could in any way eclipse what Jesus did and continues to do? Everything about Jesus is greater and better and wiser and larger and holier and more glorious and more stunning and more beautiful. John baptized with water. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. John lived on locusts and wild honey and he wore animal skins. Jesus is over all things. All things that have been given to him by the Father. Believing in John did not and could not change anyone. Believing in Jesus brings eternal life and heart transformation. Believing in Jesus removes a person from the rightful wrath of God on their life. Believing in John can't do that. Jesus is superior to all. May the joy of John's humility be the joy we experience in our life as we love and worship and serve our great Savior. And it is this great Savior that we remember and we celebrate in communion. 
We rejoice in our union with him that is represented for us, that we have been united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we are also united with him in the likeness of his life. It is this great Savior that provides us with such great grace. And grace is what we receive in this simple meal that brings us into union with our Savior. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was beaten so we could be set free. He died so we could live. He shed His blood so we could be forgiven. And when we come to this meal, it is with that hope and joy of all that He does and provides for us. Let's stand together and pray.